On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your holy word. And uh, Lord, as this text says, we are thirsty to hear from you. And we ask that you would accompany your word with the spirit, the river of living water. And so come, to it, come down to us, Lord. Speak to us. Speak to our hearts and, and uh, give us attention to the words of our Lord and, uh, and so we open our minds and hearts to you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're in our uh, third week uh, studying uh, John chapter 7, and uh, if you notice in this, these few verses I just read to you, they begin by saying that on the last day of the feast, the great day, and uh, what that's talking about is that John chapter 7 takes place in Jerusalem during the the. Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, it's uh, also called. And uh, this was a feast, the annual feast, week-long annual feast in Jerusalem, where the Jews would look back to the the time of the Exodus, when, uh, you know, we've been studying Exodus this fall, and uh, when after the Israelites, they were slaves in Egypt, and they were liberated, Moses liberated them, and they all lived in these tents in the wilderness. And of course, the Lord lived in a tent too. He had them build the tabernacle, which was a tent for him, but this was all their tabernacle. So every year they'd come to Jerusalem and they'd set up tents and they'd have this camp out in a week-long uh, festival in Jerusalem. And, uh, and if you've uh, read through the, the story in Exodus, you'll know that one of the main scenes that happens uh, is that when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, there was no water. And so they, they grumbled against Moses. They said, it would have been better if we just stayed in Egypt. And so Moses goes to a rock that's in the wilderness. He strikes it with his staff. And there's a stream of water that comes out. And, and all the people are, you know, nourished by the water. Well, during this feast, uh, week-long festival in Jerusalem, uh, they, every day of the festival, they would have this procession through Jerusalem where all the pilgrims would come and they, they'd all gather through the streets of Jerusalem and they'd be led by the high priest. And the high priest would have in his hand this flagon of water. And as they walked, they would approach the temple. And when they approached the temple, all the people would gather around and they'd watch the priests who were processing around the altar. And as they're processing, the temple choir is singing. And then all the people would shout out together, Give thanks to the Lord. And it was this, you know, this solemn ritual. And they would end by pouring the water out to the Lord. And they'd offer the morning sacrifice. And the water that the high priest was holding, it signified two things. On the one hand, it was looking back to the time in the wilderness when God provided the water for the Israelites. But it was also looking forward that the Israelites believed that that same rock in the wilderness that was struck, that the water came out of, would one day provide water not just for the Israelites, but for the whole world. And the streams would flow over the whole world. And so they were looking forward to that day. 
And so, you know, for, you imagine for a week, they've gone through this whole rite, this solemn rite, and it's been building until the final day as they've watched this water poured out to the Lord. And all of a sudden, there's Jesus. And, uh, and it says in this passage, on the last day of the feast, the great, great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's probably the most shocking thing he could have said at the ending of this feast. He's basically saying, this whole, all the, 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 these rites that you've been doing, these solemn ceremonies that you've been doing, not just for this week, but year in and year out for years, all of them have been preparing you for my coming, and the time is now, and I am here. And it's not just out of a rock that rivers of living water will flow, but out of my people, rivers of living water will flow. And so then John explains what he means in, in verse 39. He says, And this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And so the water that flows out of Christ is the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and the life that he offers to us who believe in him is life in the Spirit. Life in the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, as we look at these uh, powerful few verses, we're going to talk about what is life in the Holy Spirit. And I want to do that by answering just two simple questions. What do we do? And what does God do? If you're going to have a life in the Holy Spirit, what do you need to do to have life in the Holy Spirit? And what does God do so that you have life in the Holy Spirit? And the answer in this passage is simple but profound. So two simple questions about uh, life in the Spirit from John 7 this morning. The first is this. What do we do? What do we have to do to have life in the Spirit? And Jesus says there are two things that we need to do. We need to thirst, and we need to come to Jesus and drink. Two things that we need to do. We need to thirst, and we need to come to Jesus and drink. So I want to talk about each of those. So first, Jesus says the Spirit is only offered to those who thirst. And uh, you see that verse, second part of verse 37, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts. And you know, the image of, of uh, uh, thirsting is an important spiritual image in the Bible. You know, if you ever read through the Psalms, probably on your first read through the Psalms, the Psalms that will strike you the most, maybe on your 10th read, maybe on your 100th read through the Psalms, the Psalms that will strike you the most are the ones that talk about thirsting. You know, you'll, you might know some of these. Psalm 42 says, As a deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Or Psalm 63, similarly, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And, you know, if you read through the Gospel of John, at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus dies on the cross. And he said, there are only three things he says on the cross. You know what one of them is? I thirst. When Jesus came into our spiritual condition, he took our sin on the cross. What he says it feels like, I thirst. The Bible says the soul is thirsty and we are thirsty for the presence of God. Now, you know, as modern Americans, when we think of thirst, we think of kind of a momentary discomfort, you know, like, I haven't really, or I haven't really hydrated today, you know, I've got to fill up my water bottle and drink some more water. Like, that's what thirst means to us. In the ancient world, it's a different thing. You know, they, they didn't have running water, 
And it was often a frightening, life-threatening matter. You know, you go only three days without water. That's all you can go. And so, uh, you know, and even uh, John Calvin points out about this passage. He says, you know, even the strongest, most capable person, you know, who's, who's tough and courageous, thirst can just cripple them. It has this acute and tormenting power that can just overpower anyone. And so thirst is maybe the most acute experience of desperation. Like, I need help now. And, you know, those who experience thirst in our world, of course, are the most impoverished. There's like, it's about 600 million people in the world who don't have access to clean water. They're the, the, the poorest. And so when we ask the question, what do we need to experience a life in the Spirit? This is a surprising first answer. Jesus says we must feel our thirst, our desperation for God. That's how we have a life in the Spirit. Or as you know, the old hymn puts it, we sing this hymn. Come you sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready waits uh, to save you, full of pity, love and power. And then it says this. All the fitness that he requires is that you feel your need of him. What is required of us is that we feel the thirst for God. Now, I think many of us can say, you know, I feel something like spiritual desperation in me. I feel like my soul is is unrest within me. But have you realized that what you are thirsting for is God himself? If you are the spiritually desperate, this passage is addressed to you. God is speaking, the Lord, our Savior, is speaking directly to you in these words. And he says that spiritual desperation is not an obstacle to a life in the Spirit. It is a prerequisite for life in the Spirit. I mean, for many of you, when you feel like my soul feels parched, I feel like profound, like separation and disconnection from God, and I don't even know where he is, and I just feel a poverty of soul, you think, this is hindering me from a life in the Spirit, and Jesus says that's a prerequisite for the life in the Spirit. This is, in fact, the only way you can have a life in the Spirit is if you know that desperation. And that's why, you know, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' great sermon on life in his kingdom, the opening words... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The doorway into life with God is that thirst and desperation. So first, Jesus says, to experience a life in the Holy Spirit, you must thirst. The thirst you experience is not uh, contrary to a life in the Spirit. But, you know, it's not, I don't think it's just enough to feel your desperation it's possible to feel desperate and then just kind of stay in the self-pity of our desperation. And he challenges us. He says the second thing that we have to do is not only thirst, but to have life in the Spirit, we must come to Jesus and drink. You have to feel the desperation and then come to Jesus and drink. And Jesus explains what he means by drinking from him. Uh, The text says this, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So to come to Jesus and drink simply means to believe in him. Now you might think that that sounds 
uh, simplistic. If some of you are here and you say, I feel like existential desperation like in my soul. I feel the darkness of my soul. I feel disconnected from God. And, uh, and it's not just like the discomfort of like, you know, I haven't hydrated today. It's more like the frightening, where am I going to get my water that, that people would feel in the ancient world. That's what I feel in my soul. Uh, you might say it seems trite to say you just need to believe in Jesus. But one of the convictions of this church is that believing Jesus is a lifetime project. It's not a Band-Aid that you put on like this terrible wound of my soul and just sticking a Band-Aid. Well, just believe in Jesus. That's not what it is. It is a lifetime project to come and say, what does it mean to drink deeply from Christ? Drinking deeply from Christ is what the Christian life is about. And you say, okay, well, explain that. How is a lifetime of drinking from Christ? What does that mean? Well, you know, on the one hand, there, there's, of course, an intellectual element to that. You know, some of you maybe have come to faith in Christ through an intellectual journey. You know, maybe you say, you know what? I looked into Jesus, and I was like, oh, I, he's not a legend. There really was a guy named Jesus. He did die on the cross. There seems to be good evidence he actually was raised from the dead. He claimed to be God. He doesn't seem like a liar. He doesn't seem like a deceiver. And his teachings have changed the world more than anyone who have, who's ever lived. Maybe I should believe in him. That intellectual journey, there are depths of the knowledge of Christ intellectually that we can explore. That, that's a part of faith. But Christians have always said that believing in Jesus is not just an intellectual assent to the Bible. It's more fundamentally about trusting in Christ. It's about putting the weight of your life on him, on depending on him. It's a relationship where you learn in deeper and deeper ways what it means to trust this person. And this pattern, that's what, that's what trust, uh, trusting is drinking. Drinking is trusting in Christ. And so this pattern of thirsting and desperation, trust, drinking. Thirst and desperation, trust and drinking. That's, that's what the, the, the kind of two steps of the Christian life. You're never going to grow out of that. That's always what it's going to feel like, is thirsting and drinking from Christ. Thirsting and drinking from Christ. And, you know, I remember, um, you know, when this church was just starting, and I... I would, you know, I'd work on uh, these, these sermons in my, the basement of my old house. I had this kind of unfinished basement. It was all cement. It was really dark down there. I had this little desk. And um, every week, I'd just be pleading with God that he would give me something, please, to say. Give me something to say. So I don't show up on Sunday with nothing. And I remember one week where I'd been sitting there at the computer for hours, and I had nothing. And, like, literally there's nothing. I was like, I should probably go to God and ask him to give me something. But um, I had this idea in my mind that God had basically said, all right, you know, as the church is getting started, I have this vat of grace that you can go to, and it's here to kind of help you get started. Okay, but, you know, eventually you're going to have to kind of wean off of my help and you're going to have to grow up and you're going to have to be able to do this on, on your own. And, uh, and so this particular week, you know, I thought of going over to the vat of grace and looking over the edge to see if there was anything left. You know, I was like, I've really dipped into the grace a lot. And is, is it going to be gone? Is it going to be dried up? I mean, time's up. And, uh, you know, I thought uh, the Lord says, you know, was kind of like a boss who's like, you know, I can't do your work for you every week. You know, I know you're having a tough time and I can give you a sermon, but eventually you're going to have to, you know, you're my worker. I'm the boss. And, you know, why do we think that way? That I'm going to look over the edge and, you know, he just gives me some grace to get started, but eventually I need to do this on my own. Why would we think that way? Because every other relationship in our life works that way. 
right? Your boss, I mean, you can't have a workplace where your boss does all your work for you. I mean, eventually when kids grow up, you got to like kick them out of the house and they got to go take care of themselves. And so that's how we think God is. And so on that particular week, I, you know, this is all kind of how I imagine it in my mind. I'm like crawling over to look over the edge of the vat to see, is there any grace left in there? And it, and it was amazing. It was full and it was like spilling over and it hadn't, gone down an ounce and I've been coming here every week for months and it's still there it's not empty and the Lord was saying I don't want you to grow out of needing me I want you to become more dependent on me I want to give you every sermon for your whole life and I want you to come to know me through this process and if you come to me you will find that the vat has never been emptied It's never gone down. It is a fountain that is continually spilling over, and it will spill over not just through this life, but through eternity. You will always be dependent on me, and there will always be abundance provided for you. That is the grace. That's how you need to learn to live. It's totally contrary to our nature. This is what the Christian life is, thirsting and then finding that the fountain that we come to never runs dry. It's the abundance of his love and grace. And I will tell you, this way of thinking is, is totally unnatural for us. But it is the only way to experience the life in the Spirit. You will not have a life filled with the Spirit unless you know thirsting and drinking, thirsting and drinking, desperation and trusting in Christ. But when we do that over and over again, what then does God do? We thirst and trust, we thirst and drink, you know, we desperate and we drink from him. What does God do in the process? Well, that's our our second question. We say, what do we do? We thirst and we drink. What does God do? And um, I want to highlight a few answers to that from this passage that really is around, you know, the persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit do for us when when we live our life in God? Well, three things. So first... Jesus, the Son, calls us to himself. Jesus is calling us to himself. To have a life in the Spirit, you must be called by Jesus. And you know, in the Bible, there, there are two kinds of calling. You might call them effectual calling and external calling. So an, an effectual calling is, uh, is, you know, if you read in the Gospels, there are some stories where Jesus will go up to a fisherman and say, follow me. And then they just drop all their nets and they leave him and they start following him. They become his disciples and they spend their whole life serving him. And you're like, was there more to this conversation that we missed? Like, they just left their jobs and everything. And what's happening there is that Jesus' words, the power of follow me, it wasn't just, here's a recommendation, you could do this. He was commanding them. He was telling them. And his words changed them. And some of you have experienced a call like that in your life where it's like, God called me to himself. I didn't have a choice. He bid me to come to him, and he was dragging me towards him. He was pulling me. It was an irresistible call. And so it's a very personal, individual kind of call. But there's also an external calling. You know, there's kind of an internal calling. There's an external calling. And it's a broad, open calling to all people. And that's what we see in this passage. You know, in verse 37, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up, and he cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. The call is to anyone who hears his voice. And that's why the Bible says that even though God, you know, has chosen, who will be his people? You know, God 
deals with each one of us individually in a very intimate manner, personal and individual manner. At the same time, there's an open offer of the gospel to all people everywhere. Jesus says to everyone, whoever comes to me, I'll no eyes cast out. Whoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The door is open. And some of you might say, you know, I've experienced that Jesus calling to me. It's become clear. You know, maybe it's people in your life. Maybe it's, maybe it's just your thoughts. My thoughts are going to him. I feel like God's presence is haunting me, stirring in my heart. He's stirring my emotions. And maybe you've tried to close your ears to him. You say, I don't want to hear it. Uh, maybe you've tried to distract yourself. You know, I, I just read it. C.S. Lewis essay called The Seeing Eye, where he talks about avoiding God. And I, this is like 80 years ago, and I was amazed how much of this culturally still translates to our culture now. So I had to read this to you. He says this. The avoiding uh, in many times and places, avoiding of God in many times and places has proved so difficult that a very large part of the human race failed to achieve it. So he says throughout history, people have sensed that there's a God and they can't avoid the kind of haunting presence of the creator. But he says, but in our time and place, it's extremely easy to avoid God. Avoid silence. Avoid solitude. Avoid any train of thought that leads off the beaten, beaten track. Concentrate on money, sex, status, health, and above all, on your own grievances. Keep the radio on. We might say keep Netflix on. Leave in, uh, li- live in a crowd. Use plenty of sedation. If you must read books, select them very carefully. But you'd be uh, better to stick to the papers or stick to the internet or stick to your phone. You'll find the advertisements helpful, especially those with a sexy or a snobbish appeal. It is into this world of distractions everywhere that are causing us to avoid hearing the call of God in our lives. And you look at the fearlessness of Jesus. In the midst of this feast, and there's all these people around. He's in Jerusalem. He stands up and he cries out. He doesn't care what the world says. He doesn't care about the opinions of man. And the life in the spirit begins with the call of Jesus. That call, Jesus calls us, come to me and drink. And so Jesus is calling us. He's offering us. He's regularly offering us to come and, and receive his grace. So first, what does God do? God is constantly calling to us. Second, second thing we see in this passage is God the Father brings us into his mission. And so life in the Spirit means I've heard the call of Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. And then God the Father brings us into his mission in the world. And you'll notice that after John uh, talks about this, this scene where Jesus stands up and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And then this is a rare thing in the Gospels where the Gospel writers make a little comment, an explanatory comment about what's happening. You see the explanatory comment in verse 39 where it says, Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, what is this talking about? He says the Spirit had not yet been given. Well, if you read through the, uh, uh, the New Testament, some of you will know that after the Gospels, Jesus goes back into heaven. And on, in Acts chapter 2, all the Jesus' disciples are gathered together, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost. And so clearly, Jesus says, you are going to receive power from me. And so the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they say, well, was the Holy Spirit not working in God's people's lives before Acts chapter 2? 
Well, clearly he was. You know, if you go and read in the Old Testament, uh, uh, David says in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And we know that the only way someone believes in the Lord is by the work of the Holy Spirit. The only way someone obeys God or serves God is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit was working in God's people all through the Old Testament. It's the only way they could have ever obeyed him or believed in him or served him or worshipped him. And so what is John saying when, here when he says that the Holy Spirit has been given? Well, uh, you know, Augustine has an interesting answer to this. How, what he said was that when you go and read Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes, do you know what the church, what happened when the Holy Spirit came was it was during the festival of Pentecost and there were all these Jews from different nations who spoke different languages and the disciples started speaking in all these different languages. They just knew how to speak in the different, they could translate the gospel into all these languages. And so the Holy Spirit gave God's people the ability to speak in all these other languages. And then Augustine says, well, you know, does the Holy Spirit still do that? You know, how many of you know a bunch of languages that you could speak the gospel in? Well, not a lot of us can. Well, Augustine says, well, it's not individual disciples who speak in all the languages. It's the body of Christ. And if you say, is the body of Christ speak the gospel in many languages today? Absolutely. This, mor- this very day, this morning, in churches all around the world, in every language, the gospel is being spoken. Now, I think Augustine's a little narrow to say that the giving of the Holy Spirit was just so that we could speak in other languages. But what he's getting at is what Jesus says in Acts 1 at the beginning. This is Jesus' last words before he goes into heaven. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit was empowering God's people to do the mission. God had a mission to tell the world about the love of Christ. And that is what is the new thing. That's the thing that started in the Old Testament. You didn't have this mission to go to all the nations and share the gospel. And now we do have this mission. And we as a church, we are a mission. You know, what is this group of people that God has gathered together? What are we? Are we kind of like individuals on a spiritual journey? You know, are we a you know, a, a closed kind of group that's huddled together to, to be friends with one another. No, we are a mission. We are a mission to bring the gospel and the love of, of Jesus to every nation. And here we are, all, you know, 2,000 years later from Acts chapter 1, and we're up in Bellingham, Washington, I mean, the other side of the earth, and we're speaking in a totally different language. It's because of the Holy Spirit has brought us here and is doing the work of the mission. And so you might say, well, what does that mean? We're all missionaries? That's exactly what it means. We are all missionaries. That's what life in the Holy Spirit is, is that I am a missionary. It does it. And some of you, that might mean that God takes you to another place to be a missionary, but it means wherever you are now, God has placed you there as a spirit-filled missionary able to translate the gospel to the people that God brings into your life. And so when we answer the question, what does God do? First of all, Jesus calls us. And then God brings us into his mission to share his love to all the nations of the world. God brings us in. The third thing that God does to give us a spirit-filled life is that the spirit flows out of us. The spirit flows out of us. And Jesus says there in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What's so amazing to me about that is 
it, that is a promise. That's not a command. And some of us, it's just automatic for us to read that as a command. That means if you're a Christian, you need to go have rivers of living water flowing out of you. And you're like, wow, that's a, that's, how am I going to do that? That's hard to do. It's not a command. It's a promise. The command is to come and drink, to drink of the grace. And when you have experienced the grace, you know, Augustine again, he says that, you know what that river is? It's a river of kindness. You're going to have a river of kindness flowing out of you. And if, when you drink the grace, when you drink the kindness of God, others are going to come to you and drink the grace and kindness from you. If you believe in Jesus, you have the power to love people. I just want you to hear those words. If you believe in Jesus, you have the power to love people inside of you. For some of you, you might say, it's hard for me to love people. It's hard for me to meet new people. It's hard for me to talk to people. You have the power to love people inside of you. And Jesus says it's a river of love that flows out of you. And that's what our mission is. It's wherever God takes us, in our work, in our workplace, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our hobbies, is that to drink of Jesus' grace, and, and he says, he promises us we will be a river of love. And I think in many ways what these verses are is an incredible summary of the Christian life. What are we to do? To feel our thirst and to come to Jesus and drink. Thirst and drink. Thirst and drink is our whole life. And we never grow out of it, and the vat and the fountain never empties and dries up. And what does God do? Jesus cries to us over and over again and offers us his grace and he invites us to come to him. And the Father brings us into his mission and gives us his purpose alongside of him, not just as individuals, but as a community, as the body of Christ. But then the Spirit lives in each one of us as a river of love and kindness and gives us the actual power to love people, to love people that are in our homes, to love people that God brings into our lives. That is the life in the Spirit. That is life in God. That is what we were made for. And this is the new life that is offered to us in Jesus. Let's pray together.